When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this Tuesday episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Michael Mann, the world-leading climatologist and author of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And in conversation with 21-year-old climate activist Clover Hogan, who's also the founder of the Forces of Nature organisation, they discussed how the fault lines and battle for climate justice has evolved in the last number of years and what it would take to create an economic system that is in harmony with our planet. It's a really fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it you can find a link for both Michael's book and a link for Clover's organization in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me Clover Hogan. I am delighted to introduce our guest today Michael Mann. Michael is a climatologist and geophysicist. He is currently director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, where he has contributed to the scientific understanding of historic climate change based on the temperature record of the past thousand years. His new book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Clover. It's great to be with you. Michael, I am super excited to sit down in conversation with you today. I'm an incredible fangirl of all of the amazing contributions that you have made to climate science and to this movement. But Michael, where I wanted to start was with a, a personal kind of interest, particularly around the psychology of climate inaction. I personally grew up in Australia's tropical North Queensland, fishing frogs from the toilet and dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling. And for me, my climate awakening uh, really came at the age of 11 when I watched Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. And I was filled with a kind of horror at what we were doing to our planet, but moreover, horror at how good the adults in my life were at pretending that climate change wasn't happening. And since that point, I've been really fascinated by the kind of mindset of climate inaction and what stops us from taking action on this huge existential threat that we're facing up against. So, Michael, from your view, I would love to start by understanding what you perceive to be the biggest hurdles to climate action from that kind of mindset perspective. What is it about climate change that doesn't activate those kind of defensive mechanisms? And what is it about the way that we communicate climate change, the kind of dominant narratives and and stories that we subscribe to that continue to shut us down in the face of it? 
Yeah, thanks. That's that's a big question, and uh, let's try to unpack it um, because it's an important one. And by the way, Queensland, of course, is one of my favorite places in the world. It's home to one of our great natural wonders, the the Great Barrier Reef. And of course, the Great Barrier Reef, as we know, is threatened by climate change. And that really gets at the heart of what we're talking about. I actually had a chance to visit the, the Great Barrier Reef last year when I was on sabbatical in Australia with my family. And it was sort of, it was a bittersweet moment for me because I got to enjoy this, you know, what remains of, of this, uh, again, this natural wonder with my family, with my daughter, um, who was 14 years old at the time. But it's sort of wistful knowing that if we continue on this course that we're on, uh, we will lose, the, you know, the Great Barrier Reef. And that's simply symbolic of you know, the, the damage that we're doing to the planet, uh, because it isn't just about the Great Barrier Reef or polar bears. It's about the daily impacts now of extreme weather events that are not only damaging, but deadly. So I actually think that the narrative is changing. As you allude to in the past, we've had some real obstacles, in part because the narrative has been, you know, this, it, it, that this problem is somehow far off, distant in space and time, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, most you know, Americans have never seen it. That's way off in the you know southern hemisphere. Polar bears are way off in the North Pole. And so we always framed climate change as sort of this, you know, this distant problem. And so there wasn't the immediacy that really leads to dramatic change, dramatic action. And I think that's all changing because, you know, we now see the impacts of climate change playing out in real time in the form of these unprecedented extreme weather events. And we have this other crisis, the pandemic, um, that has sort of opened our eyes, I think, to some deeper issues when it comes to our sustainability on this planet, when it comes to listening to what science and scientists have to say about the risks that we face. So, that having been said, and I do think that we're very close to finally seeing the action that, that is necessary, in large part because of that, because the impacts have become so real, because of the youth climate movement that's recentered this issue where it always needed to be on our ethical obligation not to destroy this planet, because of uh, you know the pandemic and the lessons, I, I hope that we've learned from it. And, you know, the this sort of favorable shift in the political winds here in the United States, once again, we're back. The United States, we are leading again on this issue. And I think when the United States leads, it really does send a message to the rest of the world. It puts pressure on some of the intransigent actors. Scott Morrison, I'm looking at you, Australia. I think there will be some more uh, pressure on some of the stragglers, including Australia, to, to now come to the table with meaningful climate proposals themselves. So so I am optimistic that we are now sort of nearing that tipping point, not the tipping point we fear, the climate tipping point, but the tipping point on societal action. That having been said, there are still a few obstacles in our way, obstacles that have been put there by uh, those I call the inactivists, the forces of inaction, fossil fuel interests, those doing our bidding, who don't want to see us transition away from fossil fuels because they're making huge profits off our addiction to fossil fuels. And they realize they can no longer deny climate change is happening because it's obvious to the person on the street. So instead, they've turned to this array of tactics, this insidious array of tactics um, to thwart 
efforts to decarbonize um, our, uh, our economy, our civilization. And that includes uh, offering up false solutions, uh, geoengineering, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. Oh, we just have to plant trees. Anything to sort of take our eye off of the prize, which is decarbonizing our economy. They don't want that to happen. They have engaged in deflection, deflecting our attention away from the need for systemic solutions, uh, subsidies for renewable energy, and uh, pricing carbon, the things that we know will shift our economy away from fossil fuels. Um, they've tried to distract us from that by making it sound like it's all on us individually. It's just a matter of individual action. And I could go on. These are some of the tactics, and we can get into more of them. Yeah, well, I, I'm really keen to hear more on that point exactly, because I think even in the title of your book, you've chosen some really interesting words. You know, you call this the new climate war, and particularly the words new and war, I find I find really curious. So I'd love to hear more about why you see this as the kind of the new war. What, what are the new attacks that are kind of being mounted? And why is this a war, Michael? Yeah, it's, it's a war. And it's important to, and I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question, because I have colleagues who are sort of uncomfortable with war and military metaphors and that sort of framing. And I understand where they're coming from. And so it's really important to realize this isn't a war that we elected to be in. It's not a war of our choosing, but we find ourselves in a war because the forces of inaction, the fossil fuel industry and those promoting their agenda have worked so hard to thwart our efforts really to save our planet from climate disruption. And that's a villainous act on their part. And it is a full-on assault and it is a war. I wasn't the first person to use that metaphor for the challenge we face. The war on science, the climate wars, these are terms that have been used in the past, but I've embraced them in, in this context, particularly because, you know, what led me to write this book was my sense over the last few years that the old war, if you like, call it climate war one, is coming to an end, that we have won that war. Uh, the forces of inaction can no longer really convince the public that climate change isn't real. Um, and they've given up on, in large part, there's still a few stragglers, just like uh, some years ago, there was still a Japanese soldier who was found fighting World War II, you know, just a, a decade or two ago. There are going to be those people who go down with the ship they're going to deny climate change until the water levels move above their mouths and all that comes out are bubbles. That's, if you can uh, you sort of um, imagine that imagery, that's what we're dealing with. We will have some people who are never going to be won over by the facts, by logic, by evidence. And they're largely irrelevant now because we don't need them on board. We just need everybody else on board. And so that war has come to an end, but the you know, the fossil fuel industry isn't just rolling over. They're not giving up. Instead, they've shifted to these other tactics because, look, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want you deactivated, disengaged. And whether it's because you think climate change is a hoax or, say, you think it's too late to do anything about the problem. And indeed, the forces of inaction have promoted uh, doomism despair-mongering, and people of goodwill and good intentions, people who would otherwise be on the front lines of the climate battle fighting for action, 
have in many cases become disengaged because they've fallen victim to that messaging, that it's somehow too late to do anything about the problem. So despair and doom-mongering is another tactic that has been used by, and, and again, there are people, uh, again, who honestly believe it's too late. They're not villains, they're victims. But sure. we can see evidence that some of the bad actors are sort of fanning the flames of doomism in certain places. And it, it, it's really, an, you know, a, a very cynical ploy. Look, they realize that sort of the conservative part of the political spectrum has largely been on board with the fossil fuel industry agenda. If they can win over some on the progressive side of the spectrum, that's a huge victory. And one of the ways they do that is through doom mongering, despair mongering. Another way is getting us fighting with each other, uh, environmental progressives, climate advocates fighting with each other, finger pointing, um, carbon shaming over our individual lifestyle choices. Are you a vegan? Do you fly? Making it all about those individual choices. Look, that's a threefer. First of all, it deflects attention away from the need for systemic solutions. So that's the first tactic it plays into. It divides us as a community, making us less effective, so we're no longer you know, presenting a unified case demanding action. And it's a way of discrediting some of our key opinion leaders and thought leaders, some of our most prominent climate advocates, like my friend Leo DiCaprio, like Al Gore. They have looked, uh, they've, you know, sought to portray these people as hypocrites by going after their, you know, supposed excesses in their lifestyles. And often um, that's based on exaggeration or outright misrepresentation. But it, that's a way of also sort of uh, discrediting some of our key messengers. So it's a very insidious tactic. It's very effective. Absolutely. And Michael, you have personally been on the receiving end of this mounted attack. Oh, there's so many, I, I barely even notice it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And um, and in your book, you, you really talk about, you know, the fossil fuel industry's decades-long and multi-billion dollar effort to not only discredit the science of climate change, but to really discredit the climate scientists such as yourself who are pushing forward this incredibly critical and urgent message. And I think this is perhaps most dis disturbingly captured by what is dubbed climate gate. And hearing about this really does sound like the makings of a kind of Hollywood film, but I do think it's important for our listeners to understand and appreciate just how long this history is and, and how focused this kind of effort has been. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from your perspective about the lengths that the fossil fuel industry and its supporters, such as the Murdoch press, who you also talk about, the efforts that they have gone to to really slow down the action that is required. Yeah, it, it's remarkable. And again, as I alluded to before, you know, these tactics were... You know, they, they were, um, established long ago by other industries in their own efforts to discredit science that was inconvenient to their agenda. The tobacco industry, the beverage industry, the advertisement I, and I talk about in the book, the, the so-called crying Indian, uh, uh, commercial. It's a commercial that, uh, those of us in the States grew up with. I was, uh, five or, or six years old in the early 1970s when this uh, commercial came about and it was very powerful it was this tearful native american actually the actor was an italian american uh, and that was the least of the 
subterfuge behind this commercial because while it seemed like it was empowering us to clean up our environment, the tearful Indian tearful Native American uh, viewing, you know, the can and bottle litter that had been strewn on, you know, and it was drawing upon the very powerful imagery, the sort of zeitgeist of the times, the 1970s in American culture, Native American uh, sort of imagery was just had sort of an almost mythical sort of quality to it was sort of these were the, the guardians of our native lands. And it drew on that power, but it did so in such a cynical way. Because while it seemed like it was engaging us to clean up the environment, it was a very clever deflection campaign aimed at convincing us that we didn't need bottle bills. We didn't need legislation that would put a deposit on bottles and cans. That would have hurt their profits. It would have cleaned up the problem. It would have worked. But instead, they were behind this this uh, crying Indian uh, PSA was hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola and the beverage industry. And they even conned a couple environmental groups into co-sponsoring it uh, initially. And they conned all of us. And thanks to that successful campaign, we have one of the other great global environmental crises today, the global plastic pollution problem. And so the fossil fuel industry has, has run with that now, the deflection campaign to convince us it's you know, individual behavioral change. We don't need policies. But yes, I found myself at the center of the, the tactics. And, and again, the tactics were used in the tobacco industry. They went after scientists whose findings confirmed what their own internal scientific reports had found themselves. The tobacco industry knew that their product was killing people, but rather than owning up to that, they instead engaged in this massive misinformation campaign and went after public health scientists who were identifying the same thing that their scientists had, the, the deadly nature of the product. Fossil fuel industry, same thing. Their internal documents, ExxonMobil's internal documents from the 1970s, referred to the potential impacts of climate change as catastrophic. But they got rid of that scientific division, they covered up that research, and instead they engaged in a multi-million dollar disinformation campaign, which involved discrediting independent climate research and independent climate researchers like myself. I found myself at the center of that in the late 1990s because of the hockey stick curve that we published, which sort of became this iconic symbol in the climate change debate. And I found myself suddenly at the center of that fractious debate. It's not where I had, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I had intended to find myself. It's not where I thought studying math and physics would lead me. But because of that study, I found myself at the center of this very contentious societal debate. And I've ultimately, you know, come to embrace that role. But sure, I and my fellow climate scientists have been viciously attacked on the pages of the Murdoch media, Wall Street Journal editorial pages, Fox News, the Murdoch Press in Australia and in the UK and around the world. I've you know, um, had congressional investigations by fossil fuel friendly Republicans, efforts to once again discredit my work and discredit the iconic hockey stick curve. And then you mentioned the climate gate uh, affair roughly 10 years ago, which and this might sound familiar, stolen emails, WikiLeaks, Russia, <laughs> an important political event. Sounds a lot like the 2016 election where Russia and WikiLeaks stole Hillary Clinton emails and, and took them out of context to misrepresent her, to discredit her and help elect Donald Trump. 
who would be far friendlier to their fossil fuel agenda. Of course, Russia's greatest assets are the fossil fuels that are still buried beneath the ground. And, and Putin has made it very clear that he is not a friend to efforts to actually do something about climate change. And so, you know, Russia is a petrostate like Saudi Arabia. They've worked to discredit the science of climate change. Both were implicated in the Climate Gate affair, which it was a lot like 2016 Russiagate, uh, the last presidential election. But instead, this happened 10 years or uh, six years earlier, 10 years ago, and it was the same tactics. We think Russia was probably involved, but we know all the usual suspects, the Murdoch press, conservative groups, uh, the Koch brothers um, and plutocrats, dark money outfits in the United States were all behind the campaign to take these stolen emails from a university server in the UK and take them out of context, use individual words like trick, which scientists use to denote a, a, a clever approach to solving a problem, take that out of context and say, look, these scientists, they admit they're trying to play a trick on you, <laughs> public, yeah. and, uh, you know, they're the villains, and it's a hoax, and we shouldn't do anything about it. And this was used to try to scuttle any meaningful progress at the Copenhagen summit um, shortly thereafter, in uh, late tw 2009, early 2010. So, yes, I found myself very much in the crosshairs and in, in the Climate Gate affair. Uh, many of the, the stolen emails were emails of mine or emails to me that were used to try to discredit me and discredit the hockey stick in an effort to hijack the, the Copenhagen summit. And look, it probably was successful to some extent. Saudi Arabia, which was complicit and probably even involved, their delegate, in Copenhagen, the first thing out of his mouth was these stolen emails indicate that climate change is an overblown problem. It's not a real crisis, and it's going to have a major impact on these proceedings. So they, they, they were part of it. They used it in an effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. Yeah. It's insidious, isn't it? It's um, nefarious it's, and insidious. Yeah. And it's it's quite terrifying, but it's really empowering at the same time to begin to see what's happening behind that curtain because climate change feels incredibly overwhelming. It feels incredibly complex. And when we look to the general kind of societal apathy that we've seen, you know, in the past couple of decades, we can appreciate, oh, wow, that there were huge forces at play that were really, really trying to push narratives that kept people feeling disenfranchised and disempowered and, and really small and too, too small to make a difference. And that's something that we research really extensively at Force of Nature, you know, the psychology of inaction, understanding what drives this kind of ecophobia, that feeling of powerlessness. And something that is, you know, so important that you talk about is this really considered effort to put onus on the individual. And I think this is most poignantly captured in the case of BP coming up with the concept of the carbon footprint. You know, what's a really clever way that we can put the onus back on the individual so that I scrutinize my personal imprint and my responsibility? And, you know, I think these individual actions can be really powerful to, to change the cultural discourse, to, to change the cultural narratives that we subscribe to. But of course, as you highlight, this can rapidly kind of snowball into heaps of infighting and this kind of this ideal of being the perfect environmentalist, which is completely unattainable. And of course, as you say, kind of distracts us from the systemic 
change that is absolutely required to be able to deliver solutions. And you also mention a study in your book, which I found really interesting, which is that focusing on these kind of small personal actions can actually undermine the support for the substantive climate policies that are needed. So my my next question to you, Michael, would really be around how we can begin to invite more people into the conversation, you know, shift this story, the climate story, away from kind of self-sacrifice and and self-flagellation to a real message of invitation to get people excited about the opportunity that this crisis presents, to rethink so much of how we live and breathe and exist in the 21st century. And with that, how do we balance the push for individual initiative with institutional system level change? And I think this might also be a good opportunity to kind of speak to the four-point battle plan that you outline in your book. Sure. And this is an important part of it. And, you know, it's you mentioned uh, BP and their role. You know, they certainly and they and other fossil fuel interests wanted us focused on our carbon footprint, not theirs. 70% of the, you know, carbon emissions on this planet are from something like 80 companies. <laughs> so that's the over, that's the elephant in the room, literally. That's the, the huge footprint. And they want us focused on our own footprint. And you're right, it's sort of, we have to strike a balance here. And there's literature that almost seems conflicting. There's studies, social science studies. On the one hand, there is a study that came out that I cite in the book a few years ago that showed that if we're not careful, a focus solely on individual action can actually lead to a decrease in support for the big systemic actions. And the the reasoning, the psychological reasoning seems to be, I'm not a psychologist, I, I, I try to stay acquainted with that literature and understand it and, 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 um, and, and, and describe it. And what essentially they found was that we sort of have a finite well of emotional energy to, you know, attack any particular problem. And so if we feel we've already invested a certain amount of effort in solving that problem, it can make us less open to doing more (laughs) than we think, you know, we should have to. On the other hand, marketing experts that I know and talk to will tell you that individual actions can be a stepping stone to greater engagement. You start doing something, you feel like, hey, that was easy enough, and I feel better. So why not do more? And yeah. so I think we have to embrace the fact that there are conflicting impulses. There's not a simple story there. And we need to navigate this very difficult trajectory where we have to engage people. In, in individual action is part of the solution. There's no question about that. Um, we should all try to decrease our, our carbon footprint and our environmental footprint. Uh, you know, in many cases, the things that we do in so doing make us healthier. They save us money. They make us feel better. They send a, you know, set a good example for other people. So we should do all those things. What we can allow is for that to be framed as the entire solution. That if, if we do those things, we don't need you know, the larger systemic changes. And, you know, what sort of one of the connections, I think, between individual action and systemic action that I like to talk about is sort of voting, for example, political engagement, because that is collective action. It's us as individuals working together to affect change. But the change then is systemic, uh, because neither you nor I can put a price on carbon, can 
provide subsidies for renewable energy, can block the additional uh, construction of fossil fuel infrastructure or remove subsidies for fossil fuel companies. We can't do that ourselves. We need our policymakers, our politicians to do that. And we're not going to achieve the, the fairly dramatic reductions, bringing carbon emissions down by a factor of two within the next decade. That's what we have to do to avert one and a half Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit warming, where we start to really get into the worst impacts of climate change. So we're not going to achieve those monumental reductions without decarbonizing our economy and our civilization. And so there is a fine line there. We do need people to be engaged and we need people to recognize that they have agency. And one of the ways to recognize that you have agency is to do things, little things in your life that, that, that do make a difference. So I like to sort of pair in my framing and in my messaging about climate uh, you know, action, urgency and agency. Urgency, we have to act in a concerted manner now. Agency, there is still time to act. And that gets into the, the dangers of doomism and, 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 and despair. And, and some of it is constructed on a, a misrepresentation of the science. There are people out there who say it's too late to do anything. We're already undergoing runaway warming uh, from massive methane that's going to be released from the Arctic and we can't stop it from happening. There isn't a shred of scientific evidence for that claim, but it has become widespread in some circles and it has it really underlies most of the doomist narratives that we see, that we read about in books and magazine articles. Most of them are actually based on a misrepresentation of the scientific evidence that in some ways is as egregious as the distortions of the science that we find on the other side by climate change deniers. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I, I feel that despair is really beginning to imprint itself on our, you know, collective consciousness. And it's, it's really upsetting to hear how many young people are kind of falling victim to that dystopian envisioning. When we talk to eight and nine-year-olds in the classroom, often what they're describing is something out of a kind of dystopian blockbuster. When we ask them about the future of cities being underwater, of empty supermarket shelves, you know, a planet dying and the kind of place no one wants to inherit when they grow up. And of course, there are a multitude of influences really driving that kind of rhetoric. The way that we consume news, for one, 
you know, really dystopian kind of visions of climate change that might not necessarily be overly catastrophizing, but when compounded by an algorithm that wants to feed us information that is going to kind of trigger that alert response or that anger or grief, etc., we have this really imbalanced kind of intake of information. And, and what we're not reading, what we're not seeing are the stories of the incredible individuals who are driving change, of the incredible solutions um, that not only exist today, but to your point, have existed for a number of decades. And with that, you know, what we've really experienced and, and what we research in over 50 countries around the world at Force of Nature is the rise of eco-anxiety. And this phenomenon of mental health problems that are driven not so much by climate change, but by a perceived inaction in the face of it. So we have, you know, eight-year-olds through 26-year-olds who are citing, you know, panic, extreme guilt, feelings of shame, insomnia, crippling fear about climate change and really looking to the people in positions of power and seeing that they're not acting with this urgency that is required. When we kind of look at the other end of the generational spectrum, we see so young people kind of falling into despair and then a lot of adults in our lives kind of making sense of the situation through denial and performing these mental gymnastics to make sense of it. So rather than look in the face of those uncomfortable feelings, kind of entertaining a lot of techno-utopianism or to the other end, kind of saying, yeah, it's too late, we're not going to be able to fix the problem or just completely handing the baton over to young people and saying, you know, they'll fix this situation. And it's like, with what power, <laughs> you know, with what influence? So I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, why do you see so many people continuing to entertain this kind of denial? What is driving that? And also on a personal level, Michael, I, I would love to hear, you know, how you show up to work every day as someone who is so close to the science, which is inevitably, you know, terrifying. How do you show up every day and not feel crippled by your own sense of overwhelm or frustration, especially when you're so close to not only the science, but the very focused efforts to undermine the work that you're doing or to kind of sabotage this really important action? Thanks for that question, Clover. I mean, it's, uh, I'll tell you, if I didn't think that we had a real chance to, to meet this challenge, I, I, I couldn't be out there every day doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm only out there doing this, saying this, writing books, The New Climate War, because in this case, I see us being so close to actually achieving the, the action that we've worked so hard for for decades. And there are just these few obstacles in our way. And, and it's frustrating because you can see them. And that was the purpose of the book. I felt like I had to unpack that and, 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 and explain to people what these obstacles are because they're often insidious. They're more subtle. That's what the new climate war is. In some ways, the tactics that are being used by the forces of inaction draw upon our own you know, tendencies, our own foibles, our own vulnerability. And, and so, you know, getting us fighting with each other, as you say, using social media to generate noise and heat rather than light to get us arguing with each other or to uh, help promote these doomist narratives. And we do see, you know, clearly there are bot armies that are being deployed by state actors. There are a number of studies that suggest that a lot of them are tied to, to Russia, and we know they use these sort of cyber uh, war tactics. So what's so insidious 
and so and so cynical and nefarious is that they are very effectively drawing upon our own natural weaknesses, um, getting us to fight with each other, um, shaming each other about our you know uh, carbon purity and even drawing upon a generational warfare and um, and racial animus, um, taking advantage of the conflict that already exists and, and trying to magnify that conflict. Once again, so that there isn't this sort of coming together that we might like to see of climate advocates online, you know, in the social media world um, and elsewhere, but instead we're divided and fighting with each other. That's a huge win for the, the inactivists, for the fossil fuel industry. As long as we're fighting with each other, we're not fighting them. <laughs> um, it's just like as long as we're looking at our carbon footprint, we're not looking at theirs. And so I think a big part of it is simply recognizing this and, 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 and resisting the temptation to get drawn in to these online uh, disruptive, uh, you know, fracases or to resist the temptation to fall into despair. And, you know, it's interesting because you talked about the, the four-point battle plan. You know, how do we move forward educating people so they understand, you know, that they're really not just the, the science, you know, that, that climate change is real and it's a crisis. I think people actually get that. Um, we have to educate the public more about the opportunities there are to actually do something about it because we really can prevent the worst impacts. And in this sense, doomism is a self-fulfilling prophecy it could very well disengage us to the point where we don't take the actions. Look, these dystopian futures that you talk of, those are real futures. Those are possible futures. Hollywood has given us a vision of what our future could look like if we fail to rise to the challenge. What we haven't seen enough of, and what I uh, like in the writings of Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, I just had a conversation with him a, a month ago. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's new novel, the, uh, the, the, the Ministry of the Future, is actually, I wouldn't call it a, a, a utopian uh, novel, but he shows us how we can get past these, the difficult stages. It's, it's not Pollyannish in any sense. We, in his vision of the way we ultimately tackle not just climate change, but the larger challenge of environmental sustainability, we go through some very difficult and disruptive stages along the way, but we do ultimately achieve a much better future uh, for us and our children and grandchildren. That's a possible future too. And it's entirely up to us as to which future we realize. And so that's that's really what I try to convey. And I see a duality. You know, you talked about, about the youth climate movement. I see this as critical. It's helped recenter this problem where it needs to be on our ethical obligation not to destroy this planet for future generations or for those who had the least role in, in creating the problem, which includes, you know, much of the developing world uh, versus the industrial world. So in the youth climate movement, you do see some of that fear and depression and anger and other emotions. And by the way, anger, it turns out there's some social science research that says that can actually be very engaging. <laughs> anger can be a motivating emotion. And we have the right to be a little angry at those 
who have cynically created this problem uh, for us. So in the youth climate movement, I see those negative emotions, but I also see inspiration and I see um, empowerment and I see so many positive emotions as well. So even there, there is a duality, there's a choice. And I hope that we we seize upon the positive attributes of that movement because I think it's going to be critical to us achieving the action we need. Absolutely. And that's a really important point. You know, we one thing we don't want to do is kind of pathologize eco-anxiety or those feelings of anger and frustration because, as you said, you know, they're the emotions that wake us up. And in fact, as most climate psychologists, if not all, would argue, you know, the problem isn't that lots of young people are feeling eco-anxiety. It's that more adults, especially adults in power, are not. You know, and I think we've gotten so good at kind of numbing ourselves to this hyper-consumptive culture that we live in that we're we're almost sleepwalking toward the cliff. And as you've said, that's exactly what the fossil fuel industry wants us to do. They want us to keep our eyes closed. They want us to keep numbing ourselves. But to your point, Michael, you know, I really feel that both despair on the one end and denial on the other ultimately stem from the same place, which is how powerless we feel in the face of this issue. You know, concerned moms and dads and cautious corporate leaders and even anxious 11-year-olds. And I believe that that feeling of powerlessness is the threat even greater than the climate crisis. And that's why it's so critical that we kind of utilize this tool, which is our mindset, you know, start evolving and changing the stories that we subscribe to and choose not to, you know, fall into that kind of dystopianism that, you know, allows us to completely remove ourselves from the picture. You know, that story of denial sounds something like it's not up to me because someone else will fix it. And that story of despair sounds like, well, it's not up to me because it's too big to fix. In both scenarios, we're refusing to assume responsibility. And I feel one of the biggest barriers here is that we often conflate fault with responsibility. And so to your point, when we put that onus on the individual, I don't want to take ownership of climate change because that means I have to say, well, it's my fault. I'm the reason um, I should feel shame for the decisions that I make day in, day out. But in fact, you know, the only thing that we do need to take responsibility for, indeed, the only thing that, you know, we've ever needed to take responsibility for is the thing which is inside our control, which is our mindset, you know, how we choose to show up and solve these problems. So I'd love to hear from you, Michael, you know, what are those stories and narratives that are going to empower people to participate in the conversation, participate in the solutions? And to your point around this kind of crisis in imagination, um, one of the things I love about this book is that it really spotlights the very real tangible solutions that we have right now um, at our fingertips that we all can be pushing for with our respective spheres of influence, whether that is through our families and communities, whether that's through our vote, whether that's through mobilizing in the streets or pushing for policy change, to extending from that question on the role of story, what are the solutions that exist right now? And, and what is, you know, rather than assuming there's that kind of silver bullet, what is on your wish list, uh, Michael, of solutions that we should really be championing? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a, you know, we, we could spend an hour <laughs> talking about this alone, and it's really important. And, you know, I should say that uh, e- even as my book has just uh, come out, uh, there's another book now out there by Bill Gates. He has his own climate change book, 
and, you know, sort of now is a self-appointed expert on climate. Uh, And, you know, he presents, to be perfectly honest, a very technocratic sort of view. He actually takes some pot shots at the youth climate movement, at uh, Greta Thunberg and at AOC and and some of our uh, progressive um, politicians in the United States uh, who have promoted the the Green New Deal. And a lot of it feels like sort of what we call hippie bashing, (laughs) you know, just brandishing his mainstream bona fides by taking on these, uh, you know, these um, icons of the left. And he is very bullish on geoengineering, what could possibly go wrong? We try to offset global warming by shooting sulfur into the stratosphere and block out sunlight or dump iron into the ocean. Or, you know, uh, we continue burning coal, but we're going to capture that carbon dioxide. Of course, we're not going to do that perfectly. And, and a lot of that CO2 will still escape into the atmosphere if we continue to burn fossil fuels. So my feeling is, on the one hand, Gates is now on board. There's a bit of a pivot. He's evolved a, a little bit in his thinking. Some years ago, and I cite this in the book, he said, we, we'll, we need a miracle to solve this problem, as if we need some huge technological breakthrough. And we don't. The solution is right in front of our eyes. It's the sun. It's the wind. It's geothermal. We have the solutions to this problem. It's just a matter of incentives and scaling them up. And so it's frustrating when somebody says, well, we need a miracle. And in this book, he still promotes geoengineering. He promotes nuclear. And we could have a whole conversation about whether nuclear energy should be a component of a a transition from fossil fuels. And there's a, you know, there's a reasonable political debate to be had about that. Uh, Make no mistake. It's not like climate change denialism, which is just premised in in bad faith and anti-science. There's a worthy policy debate to be had about what solutions, you know, we should pursue. But I sort of see his vision as very technocratic, and it contrasts with with, with the vision that I put forward in, in the new climate war, which is, look, we have the solutions. Right now, it's not a technological battle. It's a socioeconomic battle. Um, it's a battle of narratives, as you say, of um, dueling narratives about what our future should look like and engagement and civic and, and uh, you know, and, and political engagement and the path forward, you know, is, you know, it's, it's, it's right before us. I mean, we know what we need to do. We just need to do it. And we need politicians who are willing to do what's in our interest rather than simply being a rubber stamp for fossil fuel interests. So, yeah, you know, I, the, 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 the sort of vision of our future that I have in mind in this book and that I put forward is one where we do act in time, where, you know, we do elect climate leaders to office. And we've done that here in the United States. If you're looking for a reason for some cautious optimism, you know, we elected Joe Biden. We knew that he would be a whole lot better than Donald Trump on climate. I don't think anybody anticipated that he would be quite as strong on climate as he's been. He's made it one of his major foci in his first several weeks in office, even as we battle this global pandemic, he has, you know, devoted quite a bit of his effort to talking about the the actions, the climate actions that his administration is going to make, appointing, you know, climate advocates across 
all of our departments and administrations um, and agencies, incorporating climate action basically into every facet of our federal government. So, you know, Joe Biden has displayed the greatest leadership on climate of any American president to date, even more than Barack Obama. And he's signaled to the world that the United States is back. And I, I, I really feel that that is going to put pressure, as I said before, on some of the intransigent actors. So if you're looking for reasons for optimism, they're there. <laughs> We're seeing this shift in the political winds, not a moment too soon, because we've got to get this done, and we've got to get it done quickly, because we, we, you know, because of decades of relative inaction. Now we've got a much steeper descent down this uh, slope when it comes to bringing our carbon emissions down to net zero because we delayed meaningful action for so long. But everything is starting to fall into place. And would it be tragic if we were given this moment, we were given this opportunity, and we failed to seize it? And so the real message of the new climate war is don't fall victim to the tactics of the inactivists. They want you distracted. They want you in despair. They want you in denial that we can do anything about it. They want to divide us, get us fighting with each other. They want to deflect attention from the needed big policies to individual action alone. Let's not fall victim to their tactics. This is a rear guard set of tactics by a dying industry that's holding on, trying to extend you know, the, the fossil fuel our fossil fuel dependence for as long as they can, because they make billions of dollar profits, uh, as long as we remain uh, addicted to fossil fuels, they see the writing on the wall. You know, the stone age didn't end for want of stones, and the fossil fuel age won't end for want of fossil fuels. It'll end because we know we've found something better. So they're trying to, you know, hold on, keep us addicted for as long as they can, knowing the, the end game is, is that we are going to leave fossil fuels behind. We are going to move towards renewable energy. They just want to delay that. And the problem is we can't delay it at this point. We need to act now dramatically. So that's, that's the, the message. There is great urgency, no question about it, but there is agency. We can do this. And this is our time. Thank you, Michael. I think that is a brilliant place to end. I'm feeling empowered and hopeful and inspired by that message. And I think everyone listening in will too. And to quote one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Parrott, you know, there is no hope in another 10 years of incrementalism. So to kind of go back to your geoengineering point, you know, we won't solve this by plastering over these system level problems. We really need to go to the root cores of these, you know, broken systems, a, a world where we've commodified nature and, and where we've exploited communities for hundreds of years. We need to really rethink that. But as you said, with that comes the most tremendous opportunity um, to rethink so much of how we live and breathe and exist. And, you know, as a 21-year-old climate activist, I feel so excited by the opportunity that presents and so privileged to be at a moment in history where we really have an opportunity to shape what that future will look like and, and what the future will look like that we're passing on to, to my children and, and their children beyond. So I would like to thank Michael Mann for a brilliant discussion. I'm Clover Hogan, and you have been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Clover. It was a, it was a true pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation.